I'm Candy Marie. And I'm Anna Diaz, and welcome to the Moving Up Together podcast. Family traditions can shape our lives in powerful ways. From the way we worship to the names we give our children or even the careers we choose, our traditions often guide our paths. But let's talk about one type of tradition that connects us all. My favorite, food. Yes. (laughs) So think about some of the delicious recipes that have been passed down in your family. Your great uncle's mouthwatering eggplant parmesan, your abuela's irresistible chilaquiles, or your mom's unforgettable mac and cheese. Oh, girl, did you say mac and cheese? Right, exactly. (laughs) Mac and cheese. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, Mena, just thinking about all of that, it just makes my mouth water, especially the mac and cheese. So today, we want to give you some food for thought. From the time we are newborns, our nourishment is guided by our family's outlook on and access to food. Their relationship with food and views on what we eat make a big impact on us today, one that could shape our future health outcomes and even decades down the road. Two people working to help us reimagine the way we see food and its impact on our lives are Alana Samuel and Markeisha Williams. Alana is a mom of five, and she's also a dedicated lactation consultant living in Oakland, California. Markeisha is an experienced nutrition counselor, and she runs a graphic design business on the side, all while raising four children, including a set of twins. So thank you, ladies, so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yes, absolutely. Now, before we get this food party started, Minna, because Lord knows my mouth is definitely watering, I want each of you to give a brief introduction. And then a little later, we're going to dive deeper into your stories. All right. So let's start with Alana. Could you give us a fun fact that people should know about you? Yes. Um, One fun fact about me is that I am extremely athletic and competitive, and I love to play basketball. So extremely athletic. I feel like I need examples. Uh, (laughs) So I am, it has been my experience, um, but I believe I can almost play any sport. Every sport I've tried um, since I was a little girl, I excelled at. Um, Even when I played field hockey, which I didn't know existed until I went to high school and they begged me to be on the team. Um, And so I just find that most sports, I just, catch on right away and I'm able to perform well. I love it. And I love that confidence. She was like, yes, honey, I can do anything. (laughs) (laughs) I love it, queen. I love it. All right, Miss Markeisha, how about you? Give us a fun fact. Oh, wow. Um, I would say everybody knows I'm an artist. Um, I kind of feel, you know, not to brag, let's say that the Leos are, feel like they're the center of attention. So I try not to Pat myself too much. But um, I like to sing. I grew up dancing um, and I always had a, a passion for drawing. And recently, as I was telling um, Lynette, I also got into the graphics part electronically. So um, pretty much everybody knows that I do art. That's my main um, thing. Wow, that's really cool. What kind of art? Um, so really, I'm more, I'm a social media manager too. I forgot to put that in, but I, I generally create flyers, logos for businesses, particularly I have a heart for indie um, musical artists. So I'll do album covers for them, um, promo for their social media pages, just all kinds of different things. Whatever you can think of that's graphic or visual, um, I most likely have tried to put my hand in it or learn about it. (laughs) So we got a little bit of everything uh, right now on the podcast, Mena. I love it. Yeah, exactly. 
And both of you ladies are in Oakland. Can you guys tell us something that you love about your city? I'm not in Oakland anymore. I actually relocated. Um, I'm in Solano County now. Um, I was in Oakland up until three years ago. And oh, okay. My love for Oakland, it has to be the culture. It's so different than anywhere I've ever been. Um, I can't say that they're the warmest people. I came from Northern California and we come, it's really country. So when you see people, it's like, hey, how you doing? Uh, when I first moved to Oakland, I didn't really have that experience. <laughs> it was kind of like, oh, you guys don't say hi to strangers. <laughs> um, but I can say it's a cultural mesh pot. You can find every ethnicity, all types of foods. So I love that it's just completely diverse. So for me, Oakland is my heart. Um, I was born and raised here. So was my mother um, and almost all of my close family. Um, and just being a native Oaklander, it just comes with a lot of pride. I think I realized that most when I went away to college, I went to San Diego. And I learned that people that are from surrounding cities, even if it's a city or two away from Oakland, they'll say, hey, I'm from the Bay. You never hear a native Oakland person say I'm from the Bay. They say I'm from Oakland. And you you can always tell the difference. Um, uh. I think most... <laughs> Native Oaklanders, like that's something that we all kind of cherish is yeah. um, we're self-proclaimed fresh people. You know, you you from Oakland, you fresh, fresh. <laughs> um, so I yeah, that. definitely a pride thing. And and that's anywhere, anywhere. When people go out of state and you ask them, like, where are you from? They're, oh, I'm from California. You ask somebody from Oakland, where are you from? Even if you're in New York they're more likely going to say Oakland or Oakland, California. Um, so that's something I've just experienced and learned in my 42 years of moving around. Um, most Oakland people respond that way. You know what cracks me up? Uh, real quick, Markeisha, I had the opposite of your experience where <laughs> I moved from the mid-Atlantic from D.C. where we are very cold. We we look past you. We don't really respond to you when people talk to us. It's like, why are you talking to me? Like, <laughs> and I moved to Atlanta where everyone talks yeah. to you and everyone says hi. And they, I mean, you want to talk about Southern hospitality and it took a while for me to stop being afraid of people. <laughs> Cause yeah. I was like, why are you talking to me? I don't know you. <laughs> and now I go home and it's like, I, I have to remind myself to turn that switch because now I'm so used to being friendly to people that mm -hmm. I forget. I can't do that back home. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Atlanta is so welcoming. I did get to visit there um, a couple times. It's it's very different. I love yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And you know, man, I had the same experience moving from Atlanta to LA. I was mm. that girl that was on the train and that was walking down the street, making eye contact. How y'all doing? Nice to meet y'all. Nobody don't know you. Who are you? So very similar experience. That's heck of funny. <laughs> now, we're talking about food. And as we know, food is such a major part of our community, of our culture. And when I think about food and what it's meant to my family, we didn't know about the health benefits to food. We just ate soul food. We, made, we ate the food that made us feel good, right? And when I go back home and I talk about, oh, well, I'm not eating this or that. They're like, girl, then you about to starve because <laughs> this is all we serve in this house. Now, Markeisha, you've worked as a nutrition counselor for over 15 years. Could you break down your job uh, and tell us what it is that you love about what you do? 
So I actually started as a nutrition, uh, a certified lactation educator, purely um, focused on breastfeeding support. So that was all about encouraging, um, you know, new new mothers or mothers who are having more than one child um, and discussing the benefits of being able to breastfeed. So it started actually at conception, um, per se, with the education um, for the mothers and the families. And then it gravitated into, into families um, and their children up to five years old. Um, and a lot shifts between a newborn and even a um, six-month-old, believe it or not. It doesn't even take a full year for um, especially black community for us to start offering chicken bones. Mm-hmm. Just like all the chicken bones. <laughs> uh, you know, you can give them a little taste of this, a little taste of that. We're so good about offering things. Um, so I, I feel like for me, the love of food, I really, that saying, you know, love is through the stomach is really real. Like I really feel like it keeps you connected. Um, it helps me feel passionate about having a, a better start for my kids, you know, futures and pushing them to have better um, eating habits than what I had because we didn't have a lot of access like we do now. So that's what I really enjoy is just learning so much more about the benefits and the negatives about food. Like it's it's more than just what it looks like. So I love that. And you spoke about teaching. How exactly do you teach people how to tweak those family recipes um, just to create healthier lifestyles while still honoring cultural traditions? Well, that's a great question. I feel like the honoring part is the hard part because it's hard to take grandma's recipe and say, I'm going to omit, you know, extra brown sugar in the um, pecan pie or in the um, (laughs) peach cobbler. Like, what do you mean you're only using half a cup of sugar? Like, no, you got to put more. So I think for me, the teaching part comes, it has to go to the root where I do speak to grandmothers and I did have to speak to aunties or whoever was the caretaker at the time for even some of the young adult mothers that I had. And I had to show them like the differences, like, Hey, listen, I understand it tastes good. It feels good to eat it, but we got to think about long-term and how a lot of those habits that we have negatively affect us. Like we all look like we're okay now. That's the main thing I got back was like, well, I'm fine. And I'm like, well, you're only in your fifties and you still have, you know, more time to live. So do you really know if you're fine? I think it's better right. for us to start now with trying to shift some of those things. So I'll share recipes with them and um, just let them, we used to have an option to be able to, to actually display the recipes. And I think that was even more helpful than talking about it because people are like, what does that taste like? And th- will they go to the store and not purchase what they're used to buying? Hmm. You know, chances are pretty slim, but for me, it's really about showing them like what the long-term effects are. So for me, it was kind of the opposite. Um, for my mom, it was, um, my mom always focused on um, natural foods and she would always, my mom would tell me where I would want like the pop tarts um, or the, you know, the, the, not the Cheerios. G- give me a bad cereal that is like the the most Lucky delicious. Charms. Lucky Charms. Like she's like, I'm not buying that plastic food. And I never understood that. But a lot of it comes from the indigenous roots for us, where we eat indigenous foods. We eat um, food that's grown from the ground. You know, your your um, corn, your tomatoes, your onions. Like it always has some kind of fresh vegetable in it, right? Um, 
we're going to set aside the Caribbean cooking for a second too, because I grew up on Caribbean cooking too. That's a lot of fried food. So that's another part of it. But uh, for the most part, my mom being Chilean, um, she was always really big on earth food essentially, and not the American plastic food, which I never understood until I got older and realized, oh, all right, well, um, I don't know where to access this stuff. And it was even hard for her because um, we didn't live in areas that had the best um, supermarkets. So you go in, you teach this family about the value of healthy eating and eating whole foods and creating different, um, cre tr essentially trying to create the same recipes, but with just maybe slightly healthier options, right? So you're going to substitute your oils for applesauce. You're going to substitute your um, ricotta cheese for cottage cheese, you know, for example, and I'm, I'm just throwing stuff out there. What can people do if they don't have access to actual good grocery stores? Um, one thing I think is really common um, in our work now is farmer's market. There has been so much promotion of the farmer's market. And at our particular place of employment, we actually give our families farmer's market vouchers where they can buy fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, we give them out every, every summer. And the program we work in as well give currently since the pandemic, they give up to $70 a month to families so that they can buy fresh fruit and vegetables. But I think that's been life changing for a lot of our urban communities and they have farmers markets throughout the community um, that they can go to different days of the week. And we actually pass out flyers um, and text people, you know, information so they know where to go in the hours that they're open. That's fantastic because how do we advocate for systemic change when it comes to food disparities? And, and we hear this term a lot, food deserts, which mm -hmm. are unfortunately our minority communities in these food desert areas, which essentially are, you don't live anywhere near an access to a farmer's market or to, you know, you're going to have to either, if you don't drive, you're going to hop on two buses to at least get to the farmer's market, mm -hmm. or you're going to have to drive over 20 minutes to get to this farmer's market. Then you go into, well, that's a lot of gas when I can just go around the corner and there's a, you know, like a mart right there with all kinds of just fast food. What can we do to change that? How can we advocate for it? So this question is multi-pronged, right? Um, and it's answer and solution. And one thing that I've seen happen here in Alameda County where we live, and we both work for the public health department. So there has been a lot of policy work around accessing um, fresh foods and whole foods. We have a specific program in our county called Healthy Retail. And so they do work where they go into liquor stores because there's plenty of them um, and work with the owners to make sure there's access to fresh fruit and vegetables. The issue I find is we know that fresh fruit and vegetables don't last long, right? Their shelf life is short. So if the members of the community aren't buying them regularly, they're going to waste. Mm -hmm. So not only do we have to work on a policy change and start from that side, we also have to work with the families in the community, you know, and it, it takes time to get them to change habits so that they're actually purchasing um, these fruits and vegetables that we're working to get inside community. So it's a lot of work to be done. And I understand, Alana, that you're a lactation specialist. Yes, I am. Can you tell us a little bit about your job and how you became interested in doing that? Absolutely. 
So I am a um, IBCLC. That's the International Board Certified Lactation Consultant. Um, never knew that was a thing um, prior to having my first son, who's 19 years old. I went to college to become a dentist. Um, changed my mind, but didn't really have plans. And spring break before I graduated, I had my first son. Came back home to Oakland um, after graduation, and I was a member of the WIC program. I participated in it, chilling on my grandma's couch, trying to figure my little life out. And I got a job announcement that they were looking for Black breastfeeding counselors who could work from home. And I said, oh, well, I'm breastfeeding, I'm Black, and I would love to work from home. <laughs> Again, didn't know that that was a thing. Mm-hmm. Apply for the job. Um, start working for the WIC program about 10 to 12 hours a week from home. And that was 19 years ago. Um, Journey through that work and ultimately became a lactation consultant. Um, And it's definitely been life-changing for me. And just as a a follow-up to that, studies show that African-American mothers breastfeed at lower rates compared to any other group. Yes. What are some of the factors behind that disparity? So there's time. Um, One of them that we have experienced, we know that's very obvious, is that when you look at the breastfeeding landscape, a lot of Black women don't see themselves, right? Um, Because of historical occurrences um, when it comes to what Black people have had to deal with during and Mm -hmm. post-slavery, the narrative around breastfeeding has changed. And Currently, um, and you know, in the last couple of decades, there were not a lot of Black women breastfeeding. So young moms or moms as they start motherhood, they weren't seeing their cousins, their aunties, their moms, their neighbors breastfeeding. Formula feeding, bottle feeding became the norm. So I think that's one main reason. Um, definitely lack of education and information. Mm-hmm. Right. So and it's related to that because we get a lot of our information and education from community. Right. As we grow up and we're learning different things, um, lots of myths around breastfeeding. And again, a lot of them stem out of post-slavery um, attitudes, behaviors and so forth. Um, and what's kind of been passed down through the generations. So I would attribute it to that misinformation, lack of information and education, um, not seeing themselves um, as a a breastfeeding mama, um, and a lot of myths around breastfeeding. Okay, so here's one that is not a myth, right? Breastfeeding moms, the nutrients that children um, get from breastfeeding is just, there's no measure to it. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's one of the healthiest things you can do, correct? Absolutely. So Markeisha, let me toss it to you real quick. Um, you work with school age children. So we know that up to, you know, school age or up to uh, children are essentially eating solids. Um, lactation and, and breast milk is going to be the healthiest option for them. Um, how do you teach nutrition to younger children? Um, I know we talked about getting rid of, um, you know, habits or changing habits are very difficult in adults. So how do you work with children in that sense? Just backtracking a little bit, I still do counsel, um, you know, newborn nutrition up to five years old. So mm-hmm. um, when it's children that are not, I can't say I directly talk to kids until there's something that needs to be um, at their level and they can understand it. So an example of that would be 
for instance, like it's really big for people to bottle feed past one years old. Um, and a lot of times that interrupts their ability to actually focus on their food because they're so used to having their bottle as a comfort. So when it's time for, you know, to sit down and eat with the family, they're like, no, I'm not hungry. You know, I want a bottle. So in that case, when I have a two-year-old who's in there in my office or a three-year-old and they're still drinking a bottle or taking a pacifier, at that time, I'll directly talk to the baby and say, well, you know what? You're a big girl. You know, uh-huh. you can't be having a bottle like no baby, especially if they have a sibling come in and it's a newborn. I'm like, do you see that baby over there? And I'll talk to them because I have a thing with kids. They they tend to gravitate towards me by nature. So I talk to them like, you're a big girl. We can't be having no more bottles. So, you know, when you get home, the bottle's going to be gone. And the mom's looking at me like, thank you so much. Like you're helping me. because they're getting to arguments with their kids every day about, you know, we got to take this away because the doctor said this or the wick said that, or, you know, whoever the case may be. So um, if I can't talk to the child directly because they can't comprehend, I have to get down to the mom's level and I have to be honest with her. I'm like, you know, my biggest thing is they come in, they say, you know, she only wants chips. She only wants candy. She won't eat food that I cook. And I ask her straight up, who's making the, who's buying the food? And they stop like, oh, <laughs> it's me. Yeah. And I, I'm honest. I'm like, well, you know, they can't pour their own juice. They, you know, they're one years old. They're not pouring their own juice. They're not buying hot Cheetos and, um, you Facts. know, drinking Kool-Aid <laughs> on their own. They can't do it. So yeah. <laughs> I make it a joke. I turn it into a, you know, I understand moment. I had my first child. I was very young. So I had to learn a lot of stuff, test and trial. And I tell them, I said, the great thing about nutrition is that you have an opportunity every day to reverse it like if you didn't do good yesterday wake up tomorrow let's start all over let's try again okay let's try this diet again yes i can do this i can do this okay. yeah. <laughs> so how does the nutrition aspect um correlate to their educational or like their development how does this impact a child's development um being able to start food um and good quality food at a younger age ooh um i know I think there's studies out and I could have sworn it's a, it's a very large percentage of children actually who rely on their food from school. If I don't eat breakfast in the morning, I have no brain food. So I can't function at school. I can't concentrate because my stomach's hurting or I don't know if I'll eat again. So um, the importance of three meals a day is very vital to um, school age children or even kids in pre-K because kids do start school at, you know, at, from one or even uh, younger than that. So um, teaching them the responsibility of having, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner is really vital for their development. It helps them understand their, um, even their mobile skills, like their, um, them being able to um, hold a, a, a fork and a spoon that helps with being able to write later on. Like all those things co- correlate together. Thank you for saying that. It reminds me of a conversation that I am consistently having uh, with my little sister. And I'm like, I, I might need to have a, a three-way <laughs> me and her. But no, like I, I agree. Like one of the hardest things is, is getting her to say no to the kids when they're asking for it and giving them an apple instead. And, you know, diabetes runs in my family. So that's a fear. You know, I lost my father to diabetes. 
you know, but but it's like so many of us have lost loved ones. So we have to start in the homes. We have to start when these kids are younger and we have to normalize healthy eating. So that's why this conversation is so important. I love that you're teaching young mothers how to do just that because I know it's hard. I know it's stressful, especially when the kids are crying and, you know, they're multitasking and being super mm-hmm. well. Sometimes it's just easier to hand them that treat because it's what the kid is asking for. So thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, and if I could say one last thing, I, I have to be honest that I'm a mother too, so we're right. gonna give in. Like there's moments where I'm I'm dead tired. I get home and my kids are like, Can I please just have a just take it? <laughs> just have it. I am tired. <laughs> so I give you know, I ask mom's permission to give them the education, but I tell them to give themselves grace. Like every day's not gonna be easy. You're gonna have moments where you have to give in because you need to get an hour of sleep. <laughs> So, you know, just being honest and being realistic. And hearing these conversations from you as well as Alana are so very important because representation matters. You know, Mm -hmm. we cannot say it enough. I think that's been one of the consistent messages that we've heard echoed throughout this conversation is that representation is important. And speaking of which, um, Alana, I want to direct this question to you. How important is cultural representation in your field, um, specifically as it relates to the women and families that you work with? Absolutely. It is actually vital. Um, As I mentioned, I was hired as an African-American breastfeeding peer counselor. They targeted um, Black mamas who were successfully breastfeeding so that we could come into clinic and impact those moms who were pregnant. Um, to help increase breastfeeding rates because we do know how it contributes to the health disparities. Um, Likewise, so was Markeisha, originally hired as a Black peer counselor, and I was able to watch it work firsthand. It was nothing like a young pregnant mom or even an older pregnant mom coming into a clinic and seeing other black mamas breastfeed. We would we would sit in support groups years ago when we had, well, both of us have young babies again, but when our older children were young, we would sit in support groups and model. Yeah, we would talk and sometimes we didn't even have to talk breastfeeding, but the fact that we were sitting in circles, sitting in community, breastfeeding our one-year-olds, breastfeeding our two-year-olds, it spoke values, right? To see another young mom doing that and then letting them know that we understand you can still go back to work in school. You can still kick it and do the things that you want to do and still give your baby the best. So we weren't just talking the talk, but we were walking the walk. Um, And so I definitely think it's critical. I recently saw a video that um, a mother was breastfeeding at the beach and she got mommy shamed for breastfeeding her infant at the beach. What do you guys think about, you know, mommy shaming and breastfeed shaming, you know, like feeding shaming? What do you, what do you guys think about that? Well, let me start because listen, I started, um, I actually, Alana is and Brandy, who was our other up together member. They were really my role models for what to expect in the journey of breastfeeding for my future children too, because I came in with my own set of education. I didn't have a lot of experience. So I learned from them. And one of the key things I remember Lana always saying, and I taught my, my classes thereafter was, if you're in public and you're breastfeeding your baby and someone stares, stare back. Like, okay, hello, how may I help you? <laughs> so <laughs> now it's easy for us to say that if you have a dominant um, 
personality or you feel like you're somebody who doesn't really care about the opinion of others. But when you think about culturally, it's very different. Um, and I'm sure you guys can imagine what cultures I'm talking about who they're not comfortable with um, even displaying their own, you know, facial um, expressions. So it's very, very hard for them to breastfeed in public. So I feel like for me, I have to remind moms that our babies are, are number one. Like your instinct kicks in to feed my baby. People are looking. You don't have time to stop and say, who's staring at me? Your main thing is to calm your baby down and to get your baby fed. So I have to kind of get them comfortable um, and and feel that it's normal that you might have your days where you have your cover and then your baby gets older and they slap the cover off your off their face because they don't want to be covered and it's 80 degrees outside, right? So again, going back to being realistic about um, what may occur, looking at the, the days where it might be good and days where you might not have those um, abilities and you just have to feed your baby. Now, Alana, you've lived in the same community all your life. Why is it important for you to continue to live and work in Oakland? It's just something about serving the community that you grew up in. Um, it has been such a pleasure to work. I literally work three blocks from where I grew up and three blocks from where my mom grew up. And so in the time that I've worked in this field, I've um, supported mamas that I went to school with, watched them nurse their babies, um, I've supported, and and now, because I've been there for so long, I'm starting to see the next generation. Um, it's nothing like going to Target and standing in line and seeing a mom that you don't know her name, but you're like, hey, I remember you. Mm-hmm. And her looking at her 14-year-old and saying, that lady helped, helped me breastfeed you. Like, it's nothing like that. It is so rewarding. Um, and so I, I just love that sense of community. I love that I see people all the time that come through our clinics because we have four sites. Um, so it's throughout the Bay, not just in Oakland, but come through our clinics. And I'm like, wow, I went to school with them. Or I know them from my son's football team. Or I go to church with her, you know. And so um, I think I mentioned this before, but it's really a lifestyle after a while. You know, everywhere we go, there go to breastfeeding lady. There go to breastfeeding lady. <laughs> <laughs> so we, look, me and Markeisha, we've been out at the, you know at the club before, yeah. and it's like <laughs> no, literally, wait, wait, get in the line. Can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question? You know, I love so it. it. It's rich. It's rich. I think it's safe to say that you're a pillar in your community that your community needs. You know, so thank you for being that. And because you've spent so much time in your community, I'm sure you've seen it change over time as well. Tell us about yes. some of those changes. Um, the biggest change that we've seen definitely is gentrification. Um, it's unbelievable. Um, the site that she and I work in most is in East Oakland. And again, I grew up there. And as a child in elementary school, just being honest, we rarely saw white people in East Oakland. Um, it was predominantly black by far. Um, a few what we would call Chinese, because as an elementary student, we didn't know that all Asian people were not Chinese and then Mexican in the same way, right? But very, very Black. And I remember slowly but surely seeing white people come to East Oakland. Like, it it stood out. You, It was a... And I mean, I'm an inclusive person. I, um, 
you know, I went to high school in Berkeley, um, which is very different and diverse. But it was something about being in East Oakland. You just didn't see white people. And they came and we're just slowly seeing the landscape change all over Oakland. Um, a lot of the black people are moving to more affordable places, um, which is an hour drive away or more. And so even in the work we're doing with lactation, we're seeing um, the landscape change. There, there, It's changing rapidly and because of the gentrification. And of course, because of inflation and Bay Area prices are expensive. So yeah. And both of you met um, prior to your moving up together group. Um, so you guys had that bond already. How was your experience when you you guys did the moving up together group and and you guys having had that bond there? Were you, how were you able to kind of bring everybody else in? Well, we're breast friends. Um, I love it. Breast friends, everyone. <laughs> I mean, our last, how many line of kids is it that we share? Same age, like one year apart, same age. I think it's our last three, three kids. Yeah, our last three kids. And that's me, Alana, um, and our other member who's not here today and then we have two other which was, one was her sister and then we had a couple other um also were moms so i think we were more of a sisterhood than we were a group like we we brought mm -hmm. people in that we knew were dependable that we could be honest with that we can hold accountable you know when we fell short i told um you know lynette during that time that when we first started like we all were like okay did you do your goal did you did you walk your whatever, you know, you decide we want to walk a mile. Like we really could see each other, me and Alana, especially at work, like, don't forget on Wednesday we're me. We gotta <laughs> gotta do our walk. So it really um it, it kept us bonded even closer and it 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 made us set realistic goals because we might have already talked about these things just as friends, but once you have the expectation that it needs to be done, then you really can push each other to do your best. Yeah, hold each other accountable. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You got smiles on your faces. Like, was it just a positive, you know, obviously it was positive, but was it just, do you guys still keep in touch with the other members? Absolutely. Um, I would say there's one member that we probably don't talk to as much um, just because, you know, life went on. Mm -hmm. um, but the other four of us, um, definitely, even in us being fairly close already um, before up together, I can say the structure that it provided was really awesome because we, I mean, we worked, some of us worked together. Um, we, you know, we saw each other, but like I said, that forced meeting, like we had to meet, um, I don't remember how regularly anymore, but <laughs> we had scheduled meetings um, and we just put a lot of intention in our group. That's one thing that I really appreciated. It what we didn't just do it just to do it. It wasn't for the incentives. Like we were all really serious about it and we put a lot of intention into it and it definitely helped us um, achieve our goals. Like we were, we were really busting moves, <laughs> busting moves. And even after it kind of slowed down and was ending, I found that we, even now, years later, we, the three of us, three of us, we have a text thread and we're like losing weight together um, I think it really has kind of changed our frame of thinking around goal setting yep. um, and holding each other accountable. I can still see how that that common thread just went on even after the formal group was over. 
and it's so important to have people that you can do life with, right? Like literally, you like ladies are doing life together. You're having babies together. You're setting goals accidentally, together. Accidentally, this never planned. I just, <laughs> this is my sisterhood of the traveling pants. We did not plan. It just happens. It just happens, right? And I think, from my understanding, Alana, you were the one that brought everybody together, right? So why why was it important for you to not only join up together but to include your people? Well, definitely um, initially knowing that there was incentive and benefit, right? Um, you always want to let your girls know, like, hey, look what I found over here so we can all get it. We can all eat. Um, and so I, like Markeisha said, we're best friends at work. And I always call them. One thing it makes me think, too, I know Markeisha, for example, um, Brandy, um, who's another one of our members, oftentimes when we do this for each other, when we ask a thing of each other or we're like, hey, I got this idea, like I need you on board, we're all game. We don't have to overly explain. We don't have to sell something to them. It's just like, okay, let me know what to do. Let's go. And so all of them were like that. I was like, I can't tell you a lot about this because I haven't done it yet, but <laughs> y'all, let's form this group. Like we go, you know, see what it do. And we did. And it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. So I appreciated sharing that space with people that I already knew, yeah. um, that I already had a trusting relationship with and I could be open and transparent with. Um, that was a wonderful experience. So major takeaways here, ladies and gentlemen, find your people. Don't be ashamed of breastfeeding. <laughs> Seriously, because I, I love that. I love that you I love that you said, Markeisha, sp specifically that it's like you need to be prepared for yeah. what is coming because it will come. Yeah, You will run into some random person at the mall and you happen, like you said, forget your cover. And, you know, what are you going to do? The, the kid has to eat. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. So um, I love that you said that. But, yeah, find your people. Good nutrition. Don't be ashamed of breastfeeding. Um you know, the people that you guys are working with, um, and I would also, I, I don't want to assume this, but the people that you guys are working with probably don't have those things. Yeah. Um, so the fact that you two can facilitate um, this knowledge for them, essentially, and kind of help guide them through this walk is phenomenal. And thank you to both of you. Thank you. And I want to say to you guys, it's really important for me and my family we have to break generational curses. Like a lot of times we know what to do and we're scared to move forward because we don't want to be judged or make a mistake and, you know, and not look like the past and what we've seen before. But I think the blessing of see, having grandparents and aunts, you know, great aunts and uncles is to learn, you know, from their mistakes and to undo those mistakes for your future. Exactly. No more spirit of fear. Mm -hmm. We are moving up together, right? Letting us go to fear go. That's one of the things that me and my friends, we say to each other, whenever I see one of my friends operating with that spirit, I'm like, uh-uh, you got to let that spirit of fear go. We don't operate in that. Amen. You know, that accountability is so very important. And speaking of accountability, we have a very uh, important segment that we call free game. Nena, you want to take it away? Ladies, here is where we give you the opportunity to um, essentially school someone in your community, whether it's a government official, an organization, um, somebody higher up in your community that can make change um, and create changes for your community. What would you tell them? What would you school them in, in your particular field? You know, to the policymakers and, and those who are 
able to directly affect our communities, I really want them to understand that these are not just legislation that you write on a paper and this is not about what you've learned in, in college or, you know, whatever external education you receive. You need to immerse yourself in the community that you're going to change. Um, I see a lot of policies written that even would neg negatively affect the people who live in this community. And I don't think they think about that. So you need to have conversations with the people who are directly affected, the children, see what their perspective is on if you're changing their school lunches from now, you know, the peanut butter and jelly, you want to give them another option. We'll ask them what it is that they would prefer to eat. Um, it's really important that you get to the level and see people for who they are and not just directly change it and, you know, hope for the best. We, we, I think it's so important that um, you get the feedback from those who are, who are going to be directly affected by that change. So um, I, I just hope and pray that moving forward, people empathize with those who don't have that education and really do seek it, but don't know how to ask for it. Um, two things come to mind for me really quick. One, um, for, for, for mamas, families in particular, is to be the change that you want to see. Um, and I know that when people are, you know, it's said that when we know better, we do better. And I really feel like we do have the power to do that, even if it hasn't been normalized yet, um, if it's not what's popular. Um, but I really would push people to do that. And, I, and I've seen that in our sub-community. You know, I, I've seen just pockets of people, entrepreneurs, young moms, um, you know, really just make some, some changes, very different than the generations before us. Um, the other thing to um, policymakers and program directors, et cetera, very similar to what Markeisha said, is that it's important that these resources are put into the hands of community. Um, I've watched over my 19 years in this lactation field, I've watched what we, we call it lactation. So we members of the lactation community, I've watched the changes we've made, the impact that we've had, because we've been able to have say-so in how lactation education and resources were used. Um, and some of the struggles we had at times, because we wanted to do things different than program heads um, and people who had the resources. Um, and it's, you know, it's a constant struggle and battle, but I think community has the power to change itself if given the resources. Can you say that again? Community has the power to change itself if it has the resources. Oh, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, we're so thankful, so grateful to have you ladies on with us today. Alana, Markeisha, thank you for giving us your time. This has been such a powerful, eye-opening conversation. Thank you for joining us, and thank you so much for your insights. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. Moving Up Together was created by the national nonprofit Up Together and produced by Creative Differences. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.